3: When COVID-19 hit, the doors to all independent venues across the country closed and attending live concerts stopped. The independent venues and promoters from every state in the U.S. are banding together to fight for survival. Many of us are at risk of closing our doors forever unless federal assistance is provided. More information is available at SaveOurStages.com. Brought to you by NEVA a 501C6.
4: You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, all. How are you doing today? Whenever you're listening to this, maybe it's like late at night, early in the morning before, uh, you know, your kids wake up or, you know, maybe on the way to work or something like that. I'm glad. I've been getting a lot of feedback recently as far as, uh, you know, whether it's like listening to more podcasts during the pandemic and lockdowns and everything like that, or whether it's just the the sheer act of creating a one-sided relationship with, you know, a host of a podcast or, you know, a band or whatever it is that you have this connective tissue with. I just, I really like when people reach out to kind of pull those things together. It just, it makes me happy because I'm glad that this podcast, you know, brings you some peace of mind, some knowledge, whatever it is bringing you. I'm just, I'm really thankful for that. So the guest this week, because we're talking about independent music, right? This is a big one for me. Russ Rankin from Good Riddance, who, I mean, if you don't know who Good Riddance are, like, clearly you have been living under a rock. Probably one of the, uh, you know, more important bands from the pop, punk, hardcore, whatever you want to call them, melodic hardcore. I think that's the most appropriate description. Um, you know, band that uh, has seeped through so many different uh, areas of the independent music scene. And Russ is a uh, a great guy. And I was... Um, I know him on a personal level, like we've done, him and I have done a lot of work when I was working over at PETA, because he is a very staunch animal rights advocate, and uh, we did, you know, our fair share of uh, campaigns and other cool things together, and we actually talk about this in the interview. He always strikes me as a very uh, serious dude, even though, um, you know, every time I've hung out with him, it's been nothing but, uh, you know, pleasantries, but uh, yeah, we, we had a great conversation, and Russ is an incredibly thoughtful dude and uh outspoken and everything that you would imagine him to be he is (laughs) and good riddance is such an important band uh you know to so many of us i I definitely remember like when i first started getting into all the fat record stuff and then listening to good riddance and kind of being like they're a little bit different (laughs) you know they're not only sonically but uh just you know the messages that they were putting out there so we get into all of that so you can always email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com I always appreciate the reach out I've been a little lagging uh, for no other reason other than just just time and you know when I sometimes when I respond to these it's like over the weekend and uh, you know I've just been really unplugging on the weekends doing everything I can to you know take care of my mental health and uh, you know just be present in the uh, times with my family and everything else so yeah but I promise I will I, I will get back to you so 100 words podcast at gmail.com the best way that you can support this show. Two things: one, tell your friends because that is the best way that this show gets in other people's ear holes. and two, is leave a review on whatever podcast catcher you are consuming this thing on. Whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify's got no reviews, so don't worry about that. But uh, you know, if you can leave a review, I would appreciate that. That's uh, it helps out the show from a visibility standpoint and um what what else like you know we're all just just first of all wear a mask like if you are not wearing a mask on a regular basis when you go out in general in the general public you're doing something wrong i'm sorry but that's just the way that it is in my opinion and uh, just take care of yourself and each other by wearing a mask that's there's there's really no two ways about it and um i uh, i miss shows <laughs> Like, just I saw some news this week pop up that uh, the, you know, Scotland and uh, England they are talking about, you know, starting up shows again, like, you know, of smaller venues, not arena shows or anything. And I'm like, well, it just seems so far off here in America. And uh, I don't know when that's going to happen, but uh, hopefully you're doing everything you can to support independent music. And whether that's the bands, whether that's the venues, just do something. Because uh, the less that we do as a community for this... Uh, The less that will be there when we're able to kind of return to this uh, normal touring system, you know, recorded music put out on tour and all that stuff. It's uh, it's it's going to be drastically changed if we don't support uh, these you know artists and bands during this uh, this weird time that we're all living in. So anyways, here is Russ. I can't wait to bring you this discussion. So, uh, yeah, here it is. And I'll talk to you after the show's over. I'm 39 years old. So the, uh, you know, I, I, was in the, the complete sweet spot for all of the, you know, uh, what I like to call the, uh, Epifat bands, you know, uh, everything that obviously yeah. you guys were very much a part of. Um, but yeah. it was, a, you know, Good Rinse was always interesting to me because, and I'm sure by me saying this, it will be of no surprise to you, but you know, <laughs> you guys are too punk to be hardcore and too hardcore to be punk, which, you know, you always kind of like we're sitting on that fence, being able to exist in both worlds, but maybe people of a certain uh, type would not fully embrace you. Um, you know, but considering that you guys always sat at that intersection, I presume that's the space that you personally kind of feel comfortable in where it's like, oh yeah, like we are, you know, a, a band that exists in both worlds um, while not fully residing in one. Um, I, I presume that it is just kind of, uh, you know, commonplace for you guys right now, but was that something that you know you kind of had to navigate that space as you were trying to figure out where you kind of sat? <laughs> I
5: think that I think that's a good question i i I think that in hindsight that like being being the principal songwriter, I think I dragged my band like like uh, all over the map music musically. In in a way that if I had it do over again, I probably wouldn't have done. I think that being on Fat, and and you know it being the mid '90s, we were uh, directly influenced by by bands like Bad Religion and Lagwagon and, and No Effects. You know, bands that were sort of like um, in in that moment were were really big. And when we got on Fat Records, like we, you know, suddenly we're listening to lots of. Face to face, and lag wagon, and propaganda, and and so there was definitely a, a sort of uh, a milieu that we were now a part of that we felt sort of an unspoken obligation to to parrot a little bit, which I don't think you know nobody ever told us to, but we were like oh we, this is how we got to sound because this is what music sounds like now. Uh, at the same time, you know later on we 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 went into a really different direction. Uh, we, we've also gone back to like a more polished pop sound. Like we've been all over the place. And I think some of our fans love that about us, but I think that it's, it, it may have worked against us as far as being able to, to be a band that people could really like put their finger on. And, uh, I mean, if I think about bands that, that became more popular than we did, maybe that's something that they did. You know, they had a, they had a defined sound and image, whereas we were sort of just like all over the place. So I, I think that our, our, our deal was being caught up in the, in the mid nineties scene very much, but also being, being dudes who were, were, were heavily influenced by like discharge and conflict and the Cro-Mags and sick of it all and killing time. And a, a lot of little you know music that was a little bit harder, harder edged and maybe more political. Uh, so I think that's sort of our how our hybrid came about.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think it was like as you know, you start to understand the context of where kind of bands sit. Like I, I think it was always interesting. Like I mean, I, you know, I put you guys and Ensign in that same weird category where it was like you know, it, I mean, Ensign came more rooted from the hardcore world, whereas you guys maybe came rooted more from the punk world. But then you both were kind of intersecting when you, you know, obviously Ensign goes to Nitro because they, you know, want to appeal to a more quote unquote punk crowd. And like those crowds, you know, in the 90s, like were a little bit more divided from that perspective. And so I just always found it, uh, you know, a really interesting collision. I mean, uh, you know, not only because you guys played a lot of shows together, but that both bands were kind of doing um that sort of, uh, you know, uh, audience engagement, uh, but to different levels and different, you know, levels of success from a quote unquote music business perspective. But, um, yeah, I just, I, I, found that you guys both, both of your paths to be very, uh, interesting from that perspective from, I mean, being a fan of both the bands, it was funny to kind of watch that kind of like, oh yeah, it's like the, you know, punk kids are maybe kind of liking Ensign and the hardcore kids are, you know, quote unquote allowed to like good rinse or whatever.
5: I think that our experience would would dictate that we, the the quote unquote punk crowds, were a little more forgiving of the mixed some of the mixed bills. Uh, we we always tried to to book shows with bands that were not that didn't sound just like us. Like we we played a lot with Sick of It All. Uh, we played some shows with um, with you know we played a ton of shows with Ensign, like you said. Uh, we played with Buried Alive. We played with Snapcase, uh, so we we liked playing those kind of bills. We liked trying to see if we could be exposed to some different people, and then also, you know, maybe our fans would would be able to check out a band like Snapcase who, on their own, they may not have listened to or been exposed to. Totally. And we we, we had we had varied results, but I, I think overall it was it was something we enjoyed doing, and we we met a lot of really cool people on the way. Mm-hmm. like some really great people.
4: Of course, yeah, you forge these lifelong relationships where, you know, some bands like you said that are more kind of um, you know, tried and true to whatever their sound is and and the lane that they stick in, you know, might not have had the opportunity to do that um just because, you know, for a myriad of reasons, but yeah, I I always thought that you know you guys were were unique from that perspective because you know not only did you exist in this one world but then you know the fact that it's like oh yeah not only are we singing about politics but you know uh, you yourself are you know straight edge and vegan and like have all these other things that uh, you know other bands didn't you know really have from that perspective but um we'll you know we'll we'll jump a little bit more into that later but you know uh kind of looking at you as a person uh, I know you were born and raised in the Santa Cruz area and clearly, you know, the good Riddens could not fly the Santa Cruz flag a little bit more high. Um, But you know, what was your, I guess your, your family structure like growing up like mom and dad in the house, do you have brothers and sisters and that sort of stuff?
5: I had mom and dad and a, and a brother that's two years younger than me. And so it was a, you know, just kind of a basic up, maybe upper middle class, Thing. i mean I, I i remember just being um we we never had a lot of like we always had what we needed but we never had anything extravagant or out of the out of what i considered out of the ordinary we never we never wanted for anything uh, my, my parents were were pretty responsible and they both came from from really strong families and so i, I, I if if you're asking about like what was the what was the struggle like growing up? It was, it was pretty, pretty much like your basic thing, like issues with school, like, Hey, I'm not working up on potential or I'm disruptive or stuff like that. And then, but at home it was pretty chill. There wasn't anything major going on at home. Yeah. You know, we, we, I was able to grow up with, with two parents that were there and, and we were, you know, we had, we had everything that we needed, my brother and I, but we didn't have anything super extravagant. We had to, or or there would be a carrot dangled, like you gotta get these grades or you gotta just the usual thing sure right and like you'll get a you'll get you'll get an Atari game system if you get like straight A's <laughs> sure that kind that kind of thing
4: yeah, yeah, like a very a very uh nuclear family as it were. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, you being kind of the the first on the scene, um, was there any sort of dynamic between you and your brother in regards to, you know, him being the the baby of the family and him getting away with more stuff? Or was it... Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, I, I'm going to presume, too, um, that, you know, you kind of going down the path that you did in regards to, you know, the subculture that we're both involved in, uh, you know, did your parents kind of, like, Uh, understand what you were trying to accomplish or were they just kind of bewildered by, you know, you being the person that you are and, uh, you know, the bands that you started and stuff like that, just being like, what, what the hell is Russ doing?
5: I think the band, the band stuff was, was sort of like an, an, a, a curious annoyance to them. And then once, once it got, became, you know, modestly successful, I think they were, they were proud of it. Like they were, they were happy. Um, other than that, like, you know, I, I dropped out of high school and, uh, which a lot of people do, but you know, my, my dad went to Princeton and my mom went to Cornell. And so it wasn't that great of a decision in my house to yeah. drop out of high school.
4: <laughs> right, right. What did your, what did your parents do for uh, a living?
5: Uh, my mom, well, my mom, when she was younger was in the, lived in New York city and was a- in the worked for a newspaper. But then she, you know, then she got married and didn't didn't have a job. And then my dad was a lawyer. Got it. Well, so my dad, my dad went to my dad went to like Exeter Academy. He wow. went to Princeton. He was a, He was an officer in the Navy, and then he went to law school in, in Berkeley, UC Berkeley. And um, my mom went to Cornell, and uh, was working in journalism. So as a uh, i I was supposed to be a lawyer. Like that was the plan. But What sort of yeah, but
4: it yeah, didn't didn't pan out like that. What sort of uh, law did nope. your father practice? Was he in private practice or was he doing um, other? Right.
5: Well, he first when he when the when my parents first moved to Santa Cruz uh, before I was born, he he worked for the county. Uh, he, I think he worked in the public defender's. I, I don't I actually don't know if he worked in the public defender's office or if he worked in the attorney general in the attorney in the uh, you know the, the, the prosecutor, prosecutor's office. Okay. Uh, and then he worked Then he worked for neither, but worked for the county I- as a lawyer. And then he, so he had a private practice. Got so it. that my, my, most of my memories are with his, he had a private practice.
4: Got it. Got it.
5: And he mostly practiced. He mostly did a lot of like probate law and stuff like that. No, nothing too lascivious. It's just kind of basic, basic stuff. Right. Nuts and bolts.
4: Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Spots and dots, whatever they call it. Um, yeah. I mean, most people would look at that sort of, uh, you know, upbringing in regards to the trajectory of, uh, you know, your, your household from a parent perspective that it may have been strict because, you know, anytime you have the, uh, you know, the military background, uh, sometimes it's, uh, you know, enacted from the uh, dis- disciplining of the child and stuff like that. But, but it sounds like your father was, uh, you know, not, I, I guess, falling into that archetype.
5: No. Yeah. He was, he wasn't a military guy. Like he, he was an officer in the Navy and, but it was more so like that was just what you did back then. And it wasn't uh, he wasn't like a gung ho military guy. Got it. He was, he served and then he got out right before Vietnam. Uh, he, he was, he tells a story where he was, he was a officer on a submarine off the coast of Japan. And they had a, they had a bunch of dudes from the CIA on his submarine that wouldn't talk to anybody. And you know, no one was allowed to talk to them and they weren't, allowed to know what they were doing they just had to keep sailing they had to keep going up to close to the coast of japan and then back out to sea and then back to the coast of japan for about a month he always tells that story
4: that's amazing (laughs) yeah yeah um
5: but he has has no idea what they were doing but it was obviously something weird
4: (laughs) right yeah so something covert as they say um yeah and so like like you mentioned you know when you you dropped out of high school did you drop out of high school like junior or senior year or junior okay um so what kind of i mean and like you said there there wasn't much uh i guess application uh, from a schooling perspective towards you uh but what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you started to you know develop an identity were you know you kind of that that you know sort of r- rebellious punk rock nature was already kind of like hardwired in you or were you a sports dude i mean i know hockey has obviously been a part of your life for for quite some time but you know how how are you uh I guess, uh, you know, identifying, uh, fr- from, you know, a high school perspective.
5: Like, like freshman and sophomore year, I was, I was just a regular dude. Like I was, a, I, was a, I was a surfer and I skateboarded a little bit and smoked a lot of pot and kind of listened to reggae and whatever was on the radio. And then somewhere in my sophomore year, I also played in the, in the, uh, Santa Cruz high marching band. I played snare drum and, one of my other snare drum players was a was a punker. In our school, we had like two or three. He was one of them. And uh, on a band trip, we were on this bus driving somewhere, and our marching band. And he had a boombox, and he played me "Chemical Warfare" by the Dead Kennedys. And that was the first time I'd ever heard punk, and that was it. I was hooked. <laughs> you I hooked. When I bought, yeah, I bought I bought like three punk records the next day, and I just never 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 looked back from that. So I became, became kind of a punker, but mostly identified as a skater at that point. I'm uh, still surfing now and then, but I was, I got really, really heavily into skateboarding.
4: Got it. Yeah. That's that. that's sometimes, uh, you know, even though you live in a, a, uh, you know, surf town, uh, sometimes obviously yeah. skating is a much easier thing to do on a regular basis.
5: And also like I would, I would read Thrasher magazine back then and Thrasher magazine would always have I think it was called notes from the underground or something. They had a section in their magazine where they would talk about punk bands and and music and stuff. And so I would, I would kind of look at that to see what, what record I should buy next. Like, Oh, they mentioned this band. Like that's a cool, like cool looking live photo. Lots of people staged. I think I'll buy that record. And, and then from there, I started reading a maximum rock and roll out of the Bay area. And, you know, they would have their columnists would have their five, Five or ten, five to ten favorite bands, and so that's kind of how I made the decisions to purchase new music, and I just started getting more and more into punk. That's
4: awesome! Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, the uh, idea of self-discovery and turning off, turning over all these, you know, uh, rocks where you all of a sudden find all these subgenres, and the discovery process yeah. when you're a kid is so cool because you are not uh, bound by any sort of contextual relevance to these bands. I mean, you understand their importance, but like, you're just, you're just consuming it all. And you're just like, I don't care. if This is, you know, discharge versus a band that's around right now. It's like, you're drinking it all in by a fire hose.
5: Yeah. And this, this was, you know, this was 1983, maybe 84. And so uh, one of the cool things that happened early on was like the maximum rock and roll, they would have scene reports and so people would actually just write in from anywhere and say like hey i'm i'm from like bloomington minnesota and this is what's going on here like this band played. there's this club is open and and then there are even from like other countries around the world and then maximum rock and roll released a compilation album called welcome to 1984 and that exposed me to Bands from Finland, Brazil, Italy, uh, South America, Canada, Europe, Germany—you know, like all these places—and it was so cool. And I and it really began to feel like there was this like global uprising. I, I mean, it never amounted to much sociopolitically, like tangibly, but it was kind of cool at that time. You know, Reagan was president. It was—it was not. You know, nobody could nobody could imagine the world was going to last much longer than two or three more years so it was kind of cool to feel like there was some sort of global awareness to be yeah, part of
4: totally and and that discovery of the world being bigger than not only your city or your state or your country but then you start like you said you start to see the global impact that it's like you can just kind of close your eyes and picture That there are, you know, so many other people that are your age that are, you know, discovering this for the first time or, you know, putting on these shows and like feeling like you actually have some autonomy and control over your life as opposed to, you know, I got to follow this path or whatever. Yeah. You just start to feel, you feel like you have agency.
5: Yeah, exactly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, The, this may be me playing a little armchair psychologist on you, but you know, you've expressed this in other interviews, but you know, you're, you're a serious dude. Like you're, you know, you're not the type of guy that's just like, Hey, I want to be the center of attention class clown sort of, you know, vibe. Um, you know, and you joke around where it's just like, you know, you don't, you don't smile when you play or whatever. Um, has that always kind of been who you are as far as like, you're not serious to the point where like you don't get a joke, but you know, there is a, uh, you know, a certain tone that you obviously don't, uh, you know, resonate in. Um, has that always kind of been you as a person? I,
5: I don't, I don't know This this is a thing. This is a thing that you're bringing up that, that I'm not a stranger to and that sure. I, I've been, I actually have gone to see a therapist and stuff because I, at at some point I just sort of like, I I realized that everybody, everybody I came in contact with just thought I was this, this like joyless, serious, like overly stoic um, person. And like, I know people who are, who are, center the attention gregarious bouncing off the walls like i don't know that that's really me but i don't i don't think that i'm the i don't think i'm the person that people think i am and so i keep but like if if enough people are saying it like there must be something there so it's been and it's it's ongoing like me trying to figure out what what that is like i went to see a therapist to try to find out why i was so hard on myself which is which is a part of that thing and um and I went, I saw this therapist once a week for like a year and we never could crack it. Cause I never had any, like anything bad happen at home. Like other than, you know, expectations of me going down a certain path um, at home and then straying from that path. But I never suffered any sort of like blowback from my parents over it. I mean, they were obviously disappointed, but they, they were supportive of whatever I did and they remain they remained that way. Yeah. Uh, I think that, I, so I don't really know. I think it's probably just just ego, just self-centeredness, like being being really, really overly worried about what people think of me. And uh, maybe I think I think that I look stupid when I smile. I might have seen a picture or two at one point where I smiled, and I'm like, ooh, I'm like, like
4: that's vowed, not me. To <laughs> yeah. vowed to never do
5: that. Yeah, to never do that again. <laughs> don't make that mistake. Right. Uh, that's it's probably it's probably has something to do with 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 ego.
1: Hey, this is Sam
2: Sumataro. I sing for a band called Drain from Santa Cruz, California. I'm here to tell you about our debut record called California Cursed, now available on Revelation Records. This summer we're going on tour with... Go to revelationrecords.com for more. And here's four seconds of what we sound like. I'm stoked to be part of the Revelation family. Let's take the remaining 26 seconds to dive into what it means and what's up at Rev. Revelation kicked things off in New York City in 1987 with Warzone, oh, Lower East Side Crew. After that, Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, Judge, Inside Out, Chain of Strength, and many more. The times changed in the early 90s, and Rev was there with artists like Quicksand, Texas is the Reason, Far Side, and Into Another. There's new music from World Be Free, Constant Elevation, Urban Sprawl, Dare, and reissues of the classics from Inside Out, Side by Side, and Orange 9mm. Check out the Spotify playlist series. Uh-
4: at PurdueGlobal. Edu, is Goodrins ostensibly your first band? <laughs> like, I know that sounds weird to say, but uh, did you did you play any other kind of uh, iterations before Goodrins began?
5: Yeah, i started playing I started playing with uh, some friends of mine, like uh, my my childhood best friend, who I grew up. You know, we were neighbors, and I mean, I've known him since we were in the crib together. Uh, he was he was playing drums and then he had a couple of friends in high school. I was, I'm a year older than him and he found a guitar player and a bass player and they were jamming, but they were mostly, they weren't really punk. They were playing like ACDC and and stuff like that. And, but he, he introduced me to them and I told him I would sing for him if they played Sex Pistols covers.
4: Nice. <laughs> You're so, like, my, my so requirement I, is I, this. I
5: tried, yeah, I tried to mold them into, uh, into, uh, fierce sex pistols cover band and that was that was kind of what we did we would we play parties once in a while but it was pre, it was very much like alcohol fueled and not very serious and then and then i got sober and that was still going on but i wanted to i realized i wanted to to take it a little more seriously started looking for something else
4: got it got it um and with the uh, with the sobriety, I was going to hit about that a little bit later. What, what, I guess what prompted you uh, was it just kind of the uh, idea of the you know sort of self destructive path that people kind of go down with that, and you recognized yourself kind of headed down that way, or was there uh, you know other factors that kind of led you there?
5: I, I think that I think that it just it like I, I really don't know. Like I I used to like like it and then also being being a punker back then that was all that that was all there was like i i I didn't know that you could be into that kind of music and not be fucked up i didn't have any like i i thought you had to be you had to be darby crash or you couldn't be punk and um and i can remember uh, but but being an alcoholic like it just got bad it got worse and worse and worse it never got any better it wasn't like, oh, I had a bad weekend and then a fun weekend. It was just it it just went from recreational to to pathological pretty quickly. And then at the end it was just really sad and I remember thinking to myself that I would if it got really bad I would stop. And then it got really bad and I made the decision to stop and drank anyway. And I was like, Well fuck, now what do I do? Right. And uh and I can also remember, like, I was listening to all kinds of punk and hardcore music. And I can distinctly remember, like, sitting there with my bottle of peppermint schnapps, listening to Uniform Choice, and reading these lyrics about being drug and alcohol free, and like thinking, like, wow, these lyrics make a lot of sense as I swig on my bottle of schnapps. <laughs> yeah. So there was, I, there was the idea of of a different lifestyle was, was there in front of me. Like there was bands that I was listening to, you know, you know, from choice used to say seven seconds, bands like that, SSD, uh, minor threat. Um, but I just didn't really know that I could, they were cool songs and the lyrics were great, but I didn't really think that people lived that way.
4: Right. No, it's a re- I mean, that's a really important point. Cause I, I think until you recognize that there is a, I guess, a proverbial path forward with that, uh, you know, practice of, you know, self-discipline or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, you, you feel like, you know, (laughs) that they're maybe writing these songs in the context of just like, Oh, like, you know, try to be a point of inspiration as opposed to like, Oh, they actually live their life like that. Because, you know, like you said, you've got no context for it. You're just like, these are songs and cool lyrics, but it's not rooted in reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so I guess it, a simple answer to the question that I originally asked you, like good, <laughs> good riddance was, is kind of like your first more quote unquote serious band yeah. where you obviously get yeah. out there, which is funny to think yeah. about because usually you have to play in like, you know, five or six terrible bands before, you know, and, and like, you know, play local shows on the weekends and stuff like that before you can kind of, uh, you know, get to something a little bit more serious. Yeah.
5: that It, it was just that, like that, that band that, the band that I was telling you about like that eventually morphed into good riddance being that, like that drummer was the guy that played on our first album on fat. played on forgotten country. Uh, But it was more so like just cycling through cycling through members. And then, and then once our guitar player, Luke joined, joined in uh, 1990. And he was at that point, you know, he was a sober guy and he was super driven and serious about, playing music and writing original songs and playing out of town so he and i had were were like minded and once we were together in a band it was you know we we began to take it really seriously so uh we kept you know we had that drummer but we cycled through uh, you know a second guitar player several of them a couple bass players until we found the, the right the right mix and then we were we spent about two or three years just working our asses off. We played everywhere we could. We recorded all our new songs that we could. We sent demos everywhere. Uh, So we were kind of in the right place at the right time. And we're really busy when, when fat records was just starting out. So yeah, it's fortunate.
4: And was the, uh, I, I guess, like, you know, like you said, with the fact that, you know, you dropped out of high school and like you, um, I, I presume the idea of being like, oh, I'm going to be in a full time punk band like that doesn't, you know, that didn't make sense. Like that was not something that you could like, you know, connect, <laughs> connect to being, um, you know, a, a sustainable uh, piece of living or anything like that. Um, so w- was it one of those things that, you know, as you started to as Good Goodridden started to be, you know, busy and stuff like that? Um, you know, was, was it still just like, oh yeah, like, you know, whatever, I'm going to work at a bagel shop and just tour, uh, you know, then when I come home, I'll, I'll, you know, work and stuff like that. Yeah, that was, was yeah, it
5: was, it was like, it was like having two jobs full time and only getting paid for one. I mean, we, we toured up to Seattle and back and we toured out to Houston, Texas and back on just a demo tape tours that like Luke and I basically financed out of pocket and we lost money just to get out. And try um before we were on fat and and i remember uh when we our first album came out on fat and we went to europe for the first time and had suddenly all these you know tours start stacking up and all these opportunities and and we all looked at each other and we were like we're gonna have to quit our jobs and we were terrified yeah because we didn't know we didn't know what would happen
4: I'm excited to tell you about a new release from a band called Avatar coming out on E1 on August 7th. The record is called Hunter Gatherer, so you can, you know, go quickly, pre-save that on any, uh, you know, streaming platform of your choice. <laughs> but uh, the band got keyed into me, and I, I, I watched a video. I streamed their music. It was one of those things where I had never heard of them before, frankly. And after kind of uh, getting to know them a little bit, I was like, these dudes are going for it like you know it's very theatrical it's heavy it's got a lot of stuff going on but i mean that in a good way like let me just sample a little bit of the music for you and you can kind of you know get a feel for it so here it is the song is called silence in the age of apes it's off this upcoming record of theirs so check it out and i'll come right back pretty crazy right like i said they just uh yeah they they throw everything at you and they're dudes in their mid-20s like they've been doing this for a while but they have such a clear and concise vision for what they want to do musically so again the band is called avatar their record is called hunter gatherer comes out august 7th so pre-save it now pre-order it do whatever it is that you need to do to support this band visit avatarmetal.com for all of that information okay thank you very much ewan yeah i mean especially too because it's like even though you know that was around the time where you, you could see some bands becoming successful obviously you know your you know at green day's and offsprings and stuff like that but there, yep. you know that that wasn't something that you could like pin your hopes and dreams on so i totally get the the fear where you guys were probably operating from
5: i think the i think there was the fear the fear of regretting not doing it later outweighed the fear of like not being able to pay rent or keep the lights on. So we just went for it.
4: Yeah, sure. (laughs) That totally makes sense. It's like, well, you know, there's no time like the present. Things are going all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess when you, you know, you started to, you know, get up there and sing and, you know, play in front of people, was that a difficult uh, task for you, not just from like the singing perspective, but just like, you know, any sort of like stage fright or, you know, putting yourself out there. Um, was that, uh, difficult at the beginning or did you kind of just like, well, uh, you know, I got to do it, obviously.
5: I don't recall any kind of issue with that. Uh, I don't think I was like super comfortable. Like, I don't think that my personality type dovetails nicely into being the center of attention, but I also don't remember, I don't recall any sort of like anxiety or anything like that.
4: Sure. Uh, And then how, how was your, you know, relationship with uh, the business of the band? Like obviously once these things started to become more serious and like, you know, signing with, uh, you know, fat and touring and, you know, booking agents and you guys were starting to, you know, get paid money for this stuff was it something that you were, uh, comfortable with dealing with, or is it something that you kind of tried to distance yourself and let some of the other members kind of, uh, you know, take, take control of that?
5: Uh, this is the second thing. Like, I don't, I don't understand business really that well. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things that happen with a band in, in that situation. And I'm sure we aren't the only ones And where like, I really wish, I really wish there was like a class that you went to. Like, here's, here's what to expect now that you're, now that you're a working band. Uh, We, we, we made a lot of mistakes just, just out of ignorance and um, just had to kind of learn a lot of things the hard way. Um, And so, but you know, eventually it, it works out and, and there's enough people that have done it longer or at a higher level that we could, we could sort of reach out to who were resources for us, who, who would be like, oh, this, like, yeah, that happened to us. Like, here's what we did. Uh, so to currently, and for a while, like even before we, our break, and then since, since 2012, when we started playing again, uh, Luke, our guitar player is sort of manages the money and the, the bank account and the LLC and all that stuff. And then Chuck, our bass player handles, are um, all of our booking agents and, and being li- li- liaison with them. So like, I d- I don't do anything except write songs yeah. and interviews.
4: <laughs> well, that yeah. I mean that's an important. I, I think once you realize like. You know, by default, so many people kind of look to the singer to be like, oh, yeah, that's the business person of the band. And, you know, uh, some of it gets foisted upon people that have no interest in that, no proclivity, no, like you said, no business mindedness. So uh, it's cool that you were able to at least be understand that of yourself and be like, oh, yes, like, I'm not good at that at all. Like, how about this other person handles this or whatever?
5: Yeah, I, I never I never everyone was suggested that I would be the one. So I, I just, it just, so we sort of fell into these roles and, and for the other guys, they're, they're kind of thankless. but we've worked out a system where, where like band, band money goes more to like, like Luke and Chuck get paid more than I do because they're, they're actually putting in like office type work outside of touring and playing music. So to compensate their time and, and all the work that they do. Luke's also in charge of ordering merchandise too. So he's got, he's got a lot of band stuff on his plate when we're, when we're going. But what we do is we, you know, we pay, we pay those guys accordingly so that, so that there's no feeling of like, man, I'm, I'm doing all this extra work. Right. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's better to have their, their time, their time is valuable and they do, they do a lot of work. That's not real glamorous or fun. And so I think it's important for them to, to feel like there's some compensation there for them.
4: That's honestly very, um, forward thinking, uh, just because it usually, like you, you know, or like you were saying, where, when people kind of fall into these roles and people just ca- kind of start doing stuff, you don't, you don't really think about those things. But, um, so that, that's like been the case kind of like for uh, the existence of the band or is that something that you guys kind of tweaked as you know, the, the responsibilities became more clear
5: yeah we we tweaked it as the responsibilities became more clear and and also when it became apparent how much time they were spending on that and in order to l a some uh some type of resentment growing, which i you know if I was in their position and I was putting in all this extra work and and getting paid the same amount as like as me or our drummer who aren't doing this this work. Uh, I, I would, I wouldn't like it. So
4: sure. Yeah. It
5: works out. It works out. So like, it, it it makes them feel, hopefully makes them feel appreciated for what the extra work that they're doing, but also like it compensates their time because it it is a lot of work. Sure. Everybody, it is a lot of work.
4: Right. The the skin is in the game for everybody um, from that perspective. Yeah. So, yeah I mean, a- I,
5: I do a lot of work. I do a lot of work writing songs, but like that, that's, that's bundled into royalty payments and publishing and stuff. So like I'm taken care of for that but the things that those guys do, um, there's, there's no like metric worked into record sales for that.
4: Right. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. It's kind of the the nuts and bolts of keeping the functionality of the band going. So yeah, no, I totally, I I appreciate you spelling it out like that. Um, I'm going to presume too, that kind of, you know, as you guys started to, you know, once you release your first and second record and like, as the idea of independent music uh, being a uh, commoditizable thing, uh, from a, you know, major label perspective, you know, do you have any funny or anecdotal stories of, you know, kind of those weird, uh, you know, big business things kind of coming into the, uh, you know, into the band's orbit, uh, you know, did you guys kind of like take those meetings just because it was like, well, you know, it's here, we might as well try it out, um, you know, from a meeting perspective, uh, or was that something that you guys just never even kind of entertained to begin with?
5: Uh, we, we never entertained it to begin with, and we never took any meetings with anybody.
4: But there had to, I, I, but I presume that there was interest at some point, like maybe people reached out or anything like that, or or am I just completely, you know, <laughs> putting the cart in front of the horse? I bird? mean,
5: my, my ego wants to tell you that, yeah, they were beating down our door, but the, the truth is that nobody ever really approached us.
4: Got it. Got it. I just the the only reason I mentioned that or asked that is just because you know it is uh, you know bands of a certain time kind of get these you know weird opportunities that m- might not normally exist outside the context you know whatever it's like anti flag or you know these other bands that are obviously you know your peers um, oh it
5: ha- yeah it happened it happened to friends of ours like we heard stories like we we've been and talked talked to a lot of our peers about it but it, it never it never happened to us either because we were just not quite. On the level of those bands, or maybe because of our our whole aesthetic that major labels just thought what's the point uh, i I really don't know yeah
4: um no for sure well,
5: at, I- at one point it was at one point it was happening to so many people that you started to feel left out <laughs> if they if they if they if there wasn't an a and r guy trying to be your friend right, but right. no it never it, it never happened to, it never happened to us
4: as always. this podcast is brought to you by Rockabilia, the best place to buy band merch on the internet as far as I'm concerned. Use the code PC100Words. That gets you 15% off your order. And trust me, you go on their website. It can feel overwhelming at the very beginning because they have so much stuff. And it is all amazing, high-quality, non-bootleg material, all stuff that is paid out to the bands. And I can't put an emphasis on that enough, but it breaks my heart into a million pieces when you see terrible bootleg merch that just, you know, goes out the door, people are wearing it, and they don't even understand that uh, the bands are getting ripped off in real, real ways around that. Rockabilia is located in the Midwest, so they ship your stuff ASAP, and it'll get to you in like, you know, two to four days. I like how I'm like guaranteeing their shipping time, <laughs> like I work in their warehouse, but it's quick shipping, amazing customer service if you have any issues, which I frankly never have, and I've ordered from them many, many times. So again... Use the code PC100Words. That will get you 15% off your order. Rockabilly is an independently owned company. Support them just like you're supporting your favorite bands and your local venues. Everybody needs the support during this weird, weird time. So go do that. PC100Words, 15% off your order.
2: your perfect home, sweet home.
4: Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I, I do think you're probably kind of hit the nail on the head where maybe, uh, you know, people didn't know what to do, again, with kind of like where to fit you guys in. Not only were you, um, you know, the, this sort of band sonically, but then it's like, well, they're also, you know, really politically outspoken and, you know, we can't market that to, you know, whatever your, uh, you know, your typical Midwestern person that might like strung out or something like that
5: that's that's what i'll choose to tell myself sure
4: (laughs) yeah well i'll i'll create that narrative for you russ (laughs) yeah thanks you're welcome um and you know as you started to kind of you know see uh the band towards the uh end of its original tenure in regards to you know touring kind of you know becoming less and less because you know you when you guys were obviously hitting it hard you know you were playing 200 plus shows a year um you know, and most people obviously would look at you being like, Oh yeah, that's Russ from good riddance. And like, you know, you kind of get tied up into that. Um, was it, uh, you know, I I guess, was it difficult for you to kind of, uh, you know, transition sort of out of the, the touring life into more, and I'm using air quotes here, like real life, or was that something that you were, um, you know, I, I guess suited for, or, uh, you know, made out to be that this wasn't some traumatic thing for you.
5: It was somewhere, It was somewhere in the middle. I think that, I think that we'd made the decision to stop playing, you know, based on a number of factors. It wasn't like we got in a fight and broke up. It was like looking at the musical landscape and what was happening with our most recent release and, and touring and, and seeing the writing on the wall kind of. and, and we'd, we'd played shows with bands who we had respected, who were older, who were sort of going through that, you know, the puppet show and spinal tap thing and, and we didn't want to we we were we definitely did not want to be that band and so we thought we could walk away with some grace and dignity on our own terms and be like well that we we had to we got to do a really cool thing and it was an awesome ride and moving on to the next thing plus guys in my band were at that point married and starting families and and uh we we would all most of us had day jobs by then because we weren't able to tour as much because one of one guy in the band had decided to go back to school in the early 2000s, uh, which which put a big dent in our touring schedule. Anyway, so it was kind of like by the time we were done in 2007, I was I was relieved and happy to move on to something else. And you know, I was playing in a diff- another band at that time too. Sure. Who you know, we were we were modestly busy, and it was kind of an interesting, a cool, interesting experience to be able to do that with with a different group of people. And it was also, I think, valuable for me to to gain that perspective because I think that you make a good point when you're like, "Hey, that's so and so from that band." Like becoming completely identified, becoming identified with with that, and pinning pinning all of my um, my sense of self. On something that I can't control is kind of a dangerous proposition. In in hindsight, like good show, like I'm I'm awesome. Bad show, I'm the worst person in the world. You know, Vanessa used to send me reviews of our band, of our albums, and I had to just stop reading them after a while because there would be like fifty good good ones and then one bad one, and it would ru- ruin my week. Sure. And yeah. So like becoming going on that roller coaster ride where like I'm pinning my my complete sense of self onto this this, this mechanism of which I am only one part of, like I can't control it, uh, was, was becoming taxing. And I, I didn't see it at the time, but I think that the break ga- gave me some perspective to be like, Oh yeah. Like it's just a band like, like thousands of others. And we, we were not the biggest band in the world. We were not the smallest band in the world. We just were. And what a cool opportunity it was and how grateful to have had that opportunity and that experience. So I think the break helped me to sort of make good riddance right sized uh, for me. Yeah. Which it was gave, really valuable.
4: Totally. Yeah. No, it gave you a uh, perspective because I, I think that, you yeah. know, when you're on the proverbial hamster wheel of, you know, put out a record tour for 18 months write right. a new record for two like you, you're just in the middle of it and you have no uh, way of actually having uh, a healthy relationship with your artistic output in your band and so that it's cool that you were able to kind of see all that in motion as you were uh, you know distancing yourself from obviously being on the road and stuff like that
5: yeah it was it was uh yeah it was really good It was a good experience and it's it's really informed like good riddance post 2012 so like you get you get four dudes that are a little bit older and wiser and 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 have all had this sort of same experience to make have the band be right-sized in the in the five years we didn't play and so you get four guys that are just just super grateful for any opportunity to play and travel and and uh no longer caught up in the in the day-to-day like it's crazy the things that i would think about and like the the imagined competition with, with my peers, the, the obsession about like how many people came to the show versus the same venue last time, uh, or, or like how many people came to the, this other band's show last week compared to our show, like getting caught up in that is, is just a, a nightmare. So I'm grateful that we don't have that anymore.
4: Yeah. Well now, now it actually gets to be like, you know, probably how it was obviously at the very beginning where you're just like, Hey, Oh wow. We get to play some shows. Like, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And also like some of the like personality conflicts in the band while like based on what I've, you know, talking to peers and stuff like our, our band over the years, you know, we had our, we had our issues, but we never pulled over on the side of the road to fist fight each other or anything like that. Like I've, I've seen and heard of some crazy, crazier, way crazier things that never happened to us but like our interpersonal relationship with each other now is, is so much more chill. Uh, like I said, it's just like, man, we, we get to do this, you know, not like we have to, like, we get to do this. Like, this is really cool. Yeah. It's made the whole, it's made the whole thing just more enjoyable for me.
4: Yeah. No, that's really, that's, that's special. Cause yeah, the, these things are opportunities rather than obligations. Yeah. Yeah um, two last things I want to hit on before I let you go. Um, you know, clearly no interview that you have ever done could be, uh, you know, not mention hockey. Like, it's so funny because, you know, it's like, everyone's just like, dude, you're a hockey scout. Like, that's so crazy. And like, you know, it's a cool job and obviously it's a unique angle. Um, the, uh, the, the thing I wanted to kind of pull the thread on for that is the fact that, There was always, you know, up until arguably, I would say, you know, late 90s, early 2000s was this real division between, you know, being a punk and hardcore kid uh, versus being a sports person, like you kind of had to secretly, you know, kind of keep that under wraps because it was like, you know, the jock mentality and that, all that sort of stuff. Um, did you ever find that for yourself where it's like, you know, even though hockey is obviously not the same sort of context as like, you know, uh, you know, a football or baseball player in regards to that, you know, jock mentality, um, you know, was that something that you kind of had to like navigate where it's like, okay, here's my hockey fandom and then you know here's me as a person as far as like within the you know context of the the punk scene as it were or did you just not care
5: <laughs> I think I didn't care and I also didn't really run up against it that much like I know exactly what you're talking about the the you know like Ed Kennedy's had a song called Jocko Rama and there's you know a bunch of a bunch of things like that but then there's also you know a whole bunch of hardcore bands that like sort of adopted an athletic look who who kind of looked like jocks. I don't know if that was just out of happenstance or what, but, um, and I also think that like, you know, like I know a guy named Scott who sings for a band called Pulley. He used to sing for 10 foot pole. And he he was a a major league. He was, he was a major league pitcher.
3: Yep.
5: And I'll bet you nobody ever like went up to him in a show. and like, you're a fucking jock. You suck. Like (laughs) people probably went up to him and were just like, Oh, that's so cool. So I think it's it's one of those things where people people will will talk badly about it when they're around their friends. But if they are if they were alone with with Wayne Gretzky, they'd probably be pretty fucking stoked to like meet him. <laughs> totally. And they wouldn't they wouldn't be like, I'm not gonna shake your hand. You're a fucking jock. Like I don't think I just don't think people operate that way. At least that's been my experience. And I also think that one of the things that appealed to me about hockey was it's a lot like punk rock. Like And and granted, like I don't live in, in Canada, so I don't, I didn't grow up with it, but like it's, it's underground and it's kind of like on the, on the fringe and it's not, it's not for everybody. Like it's really fast, it's really violent and it's really colorful, just, just like punk rock is. And so I always thought it, 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 it had a perfect place, you know, in that, in that sort of milieu. And, but again, if you, if you talk to people in Canada, a lot of times like the football player jocks that I dealt with in high school, like in Canada in high school, you dealt with hockey playing jocks. I think so. Right. Um, I'm sure like, cause I, I'm engaged, you know, I, the, the woman I live with, she's Canadian and she's like, yeah, in high school, like all the guys that I couldn't stand were hockey players. So I, I, I get it to to an extent I get it. Um, but I also think that most, most of the time it's, it hasn't been a problem. Like, and when we, whenever we've toured Canada, the punkest dude at the show is still willing to talk hockey with me and knows everything about everything. That's awesome. Yeah. So like they they they'll they'll come to the show like they're they're punkers and they're cool and all that. But but like if you if you ask them about like hockey, they'll they'll talk hockey with they, they'll they'll talk hockey with me. They all do. Right. Um, no, that's so re- Pretty
4: fun. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. They're like, yo, how how are the San Diego goals this year? It's like. <laughs> Yeah, you're like okay. Yeah. I guess we're doing this.
5: <laughs> um, they kind of look around and they kind of look around and make sure their cover's not going to get blown. But like, I mean, they're pe- people people that love hockey they they love it. And and in, in Canada for Canadians, a lot of times it's it's like it brings up like you know Saturday nights watching TV with their grandpa. It, it brings up a lot of good things that people don't want to let go of. Um, yeah, and so I think it's culturally it's it's kind of like a a landmark that everybody can sort of point out and and speak to um, but right. i just i just love i love the game I love everything about it and i and I don't really care if it's not cool
4: yeah oh no no I, I i agree i mean yeah you've always you know been very uh vocal about that um but like I said I was just you know curious of your your experience with that but th- it's cool that you obviously haven't had to you know any of those negative experiences where people, you know, have come at you just like, dude, why do you like sports so much? It's just like, what are you, what are you talking about, dude? (laughs) So it's cool. Um, the the last thing I want to hit on was the, you know, kind of what we were talking about, you know, a little towards the beginning where, you know, clearly good riddance has always been a you know, political band and you've always expressed your, you know, veganism and, you know, being straight edge. And you've been it for a very, very long time. And you've observed all of the, um, you know, ebbs and flows in both, you know, the straight edge movement and obviously, you know, the animal rights movement. Um, do you, uh, you know, uh, considering it's so important to you, um, you know, both things, you know, veganism and straight edge, do you kind of reflect on the changes that you have seen, um, sort of incrementally, or is it something you try to view, you know, holistically where it's like, oh man, when I first, you know, became vegetarian and vegan, you know, some 30 years ago, uh, this is where it was. Um, you know, I guess, how does it kind of like sit in your brain or do you just kind of try to focus on, uh, you know, what you are doing as an individual?
5: I I think, I think what you're asking is, is it, do I think more in the macro or do I think about like just myself and how it manifests in my life? Yeah.
4: That you, you said it in a much better way than I did. So thank you, Russ.
5: (laughs) I, I think that it's kind of cool because I take for granted things nowadays that that I've forgotten about like and when we when we first started touring you know like our our bass player was vegan uh, and our guitar player is vegetarian I was vegan and there was no internet really there was no whole foods so we would roll into towns and we had this book by Linda McCartney this like little just like really sketchy, like vegetarian guide to North America that Linda McCartney had put out, I think. So we'd try to find those places or we'd get to the venue and we'd be sound checking. And like some, some kids would show up either with stuff they cooked themselves or like to, to take us to like the local hippie co-op place in that town. Or we'd go to an ISHCON center and get free vegetarian food. So like it was the landscape for touring as a as a vegan or vegetarian back then was, was a lot different and required a lot of work. But at the time we didn't think of it that way. We were just like, well, this is how it is. And and it was sort of cool to meet people that way and discover each town's, each town's like little co-op or vegan restaurant or, you know, thing like that. Uh, also, you know, Starbucks didn't have soy milk and now Starbucks has soy, almond, coconut, whatever you want. And, and now you can go to every town and there's, um, if you wanted to, you could go to Carl's Jr. and get a vegan burger now. Yep. Um, not that, not that I would do that, but like the fact that that exists is pretty in the macro. That's pretty cool. And there's whole foods, there's tons of health food restaurants. There's happy cow. There's tons of apps that'll show you exactly where to go. So it's, it's way different. And that's why when I'm, when I'm, um, uh, entertaining my my instagram trolls all day long it's uh it's crazy when people are like oh it's so hard it's so hard i could never do that it's like dude you don't even know how easy it is now
4: <laughs> right
5: you 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 can't like you can't walk out your door without running into a a, a place where you could get vegan food so uh it, it was it would definitely was a struggle but it wasn't like oh poor me this is hard it was like these this is the decision that that we've made for ourselves and and um so let's, let's do what we what we got to do. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's way, it's way easier now. Yeah. And That's it's also, it's also, it's not even like back then it was sort of a, a weird fringe thing. Like, like you were, you were weird if you're a vegetarian, let alone vegan back then. And now veganism is, is in the lexicon so much more. Like everybody knows somebody who's vegan or who's trying it or who's, or plant-based or something like that. Uh, so and there's commercials on TV for like soy milk and almond milk. And I mean, it's like, it's, it's madness. Um,
4: yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's, it is, um, yeah, it is interesting to, you know, watch these these movements, uh, you know, kind of change and morph. And then, you know, on one hand, you don't want to be cynical where it's just like, oh, yeah, this is the only reason that it is this is because people can make money off it. But, you know, if it is obviously creating the greater benefit for, you know, everybody holistically, it's like, well that's okay then, you know, that's, you have to, if you have to follow the money, then follow the money. And it's like, I would rather follow the money towards a sustainable future than, you know, the, the, well,
5: yeah. Like if I'm, yeah. if I'm an investor and if I'm an investor and I'm, and I'm an animal rights activist, like I'm all in for beyond meat. Cause like, Hey, this, this is a thing that's going to be successful and is awesome and is making things better. And it, it'll make me money if I'm an investor. So like, yeah. of course, most of the time when you're an investor, you're kind of like, you're holding your nose and you're buying stock and something that you're just sort of like, eh, whatever, like it looks okay. Um, whereas like you, if you're an animal rights person, like now there's stocks that you can absolutely 100% get behind.
4: Yeah. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, for sure.
5: Not that, not that the stock market matters, you know, to most people, <laughs> but like, <I'm laughs> right. like as an example, as an example of how different things are.
4: Yep. Totally, yeah. That, that yeah. It, it's not like you could have, uh, you know, uh, invested in uh, raw tofu in the uh, '80s with uh, nu- nutritional no. yeast.
5: <laughs> Although I, I would have loved, man, if if you could have invested in nutritional yeast like 50 years ago, I'd be, I'd oh. be sitting pretty.
4: Oh, absolutely, dude. Cheese before f- fake cheese before was fake cheese. <laughs> yep yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I could go on with you for a while, but I, I'm not going to. We'll just uh, start our own separate podcast for that. But uh, thank you so much, Russ. I really appreciate you hanging out with me that was russ thank you very much to vanessa his publicist for helping set this up and uh thank you to russ because uh yeah he donated his time to this show and i appreciate that immensely so check out good riddance like if you have not listened to them in general just just do it because they not only are their newer records really good but forgotten country and everything that is classic good riddance it still holds up and is still potent and uh, i love the band so much so next week we have a great one a great discussion with Corey Kaufman from Gleamer. And if you are not hip to Gleamer, just do your research right now, stream both of their LPs. They are a great shoegaze, atmospheric band, just so, so good. Like it's one of those records that, uh, you know, especially their newest one that I can listen to Like once it's over, I'm just like, well, I'll just listen to that whole thing again. So we had Corey, the the brainchild behind Gleamer and uh, we talk, we talk. And we talk and we talk and we talk because that's what we do in the podcast. So anyways, until then, please be safe, everybody.
3: The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?